0: Good morning. That was really weird. I turned the mic on, and the lights went up. <laughs> it was weird. I hope nothing else happens like that in the course of the hour. Uh, I'm Chris Meyer. I don't do this very often. I figure it'll take about a half a page before the butterflies exit the stage, and I am left here by myself. And. Uh, I am excited about sharing from the Scripture with you this morning. I, I am excited because I get to share with you from some of the passages that have been some of my favorite passages for many, many years. And, and yet they are big. And so I will have to give you this disclaimer this morning that there are many things that really should be said, many of which I will not say, because we would be here till, I, I don't know, dinner or something, and you would get bored and tar and feather me or something. Um, There is much that could be said about the big themes in Christianity and about the core uh, concepts of our faith and about our Savior, Jesus. So today, forgive me if I focus on some and do not offer all of the points that might balance those things out. We okay with that? Can we do that? Okay, good. Otherwise, it, i got to be here for hours, and you wouldn't like that. So we're going to be camping this morning in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Y- you can just put your thumb in it if you want to. Those of you who still like to have a hard copy in front of you instead of reading from the screen, um, I'm going to be reading from my hard copy. And I'm going to bounce around from a a few different uh, versions. We'll be mostly in the English Standard Version this morning, but I do have a couple of scriptures in different versions. Uh, No apology is given. There are good reasons for that. You can talk to me afterwards if you like. So there's a kind of theme in a lot of popular movies that people find enjoyable. Uh, It's enjoyable because it's humorous, and because it can also be strangely satisfying. How many of you have seen the movie Freaky Friday? OK. I probably didn't expect that one, did you? Uh, this is a movie that was based on a novel written in 1972. It was made into a movie in 76. And then it was redone in thir- 2013. Uh, so redos tell you one thing, especially when there's that many years that have passed. And that's that there's a theme in it that really captures people and that people find satisfying. So in this movie, a 30-something-year-old woman, a mother, and her 13-year-old daughter, through a strange uh, series of of events, wind up switching bodies. They wake up the next morning, and they are occupying one another's bodies. It's a strange concept, but what ensues is a series of comedic events uh, on both sides, when the 30-something-year-old woman Uh, probably gets a refresher course in what it's like to be 13. That was funny. And the 13-year-old gets a crash course in what it's like to be an adult. That was funny, but probably less so for the (laughs) 13-year-old. The happily ever after component to the movie is the fact that by going through these experiences, these two people gain a quality of understanding and empathy for one another that they did not have going into this event, this strange series of events. They gain insight into the challenges that are faced by the other person, the fears that these people have, the longings that they have. And because of these experiences, they relate to one another in a more compassionate way, in a more insightful way at the end of the movie. Now, you see this in other movies as well. Men are landed in the position of playing a woman or a woman in the position of uh, perhaps a a male, a traditionally male-occupied role. Uh, Think uh, Private Benjamin or something like that. Uh, Older people are put in the position of younger and younger in the position of older. Um, And these reversals we find strangely satisfying, particularly when we occupy the role that some person is being cast into that they previously did not understand, okay? So if you're a woman and you're watching this guy suddenly cast in the role of a woman, you're going, oh yeah, (laughs) now you get it. You thought this was a piece of cake, right? And now, oh, it's just satisfying, isn't it? Because now we know that they're understanding and they're understanding not based on some strange concept, but their understanding based on experience. Now, I had an experience of something very much like this when uh, my first three children, uh, Siri, Laurel, and Ben, were probably in the uh, 6-8-10 zone. Annie's mother decided that she wanted to take Annie and Annie's sister on a trip. So they did. They left for 10 days. I told her it would be fine. After all, I had been a fairly involved father. I had a pretty good idea about the nuts and bolts of of what went on in the household. Surely, it was going to be a manageable experience. (laughs) Uh, Ken laughs, (laughs) you knew what was coming. Well, it, it was manageable, barely. But I have to tell you that after doing all of the cooking and the laundry and the homeschooling and the networking with the nanny and working full-time for 10 days, and I slept occasionally, I had a more robust and insightful appreciation for everything that my wife did on a day-to-day basis. Now, let's be clear. Before the trip, I knew what she did. You could have asked me, It's 10.30 in the morning. What do you think Annie's doing right now? I'd say, well, right about now, she's probably struggling with science and trying to move on to English. And she's thinking about lunch, but she's also checking the homework of the earlier kid. And and, and, oh, yeah, by the way, she's got this preschooler who really needs a lot of attention. And so she's kind of bouncing around between these four or five things. And if you'd asked me at any point in the day, what do you think Annie's doing right about now, I could have told you. I knew it. I didn't know it. After the trip, let me tell you, I knew it. I knew it differently. So in short, we we all know this. This is why these movies are satisfying. We know that there's a difference between knowing something intellectually and experiencing something. And this has a very big effect on our relationships. We know that when someone can relate to us on the basis of having shared our experience, we relate to that person differently. So think about it. When you want advice about how to do something, who do you go to? When I was trying to finish working on our house, I I sucked up advice from every tradesman I could. If you knew something about doing window trim, I was gonna buttonhole you until you begged permission to leave. Because I wanted to know everything you knew about how to put up window trim. But I would not have asked the guy doing the concrete about the window trim, right? I mean, I I want somebody who knows based on experience. I watched a a movie recently where uh, on a remote Greek island, a uh, a member of a family had an acute appendicitis. The only person they could find to do the surgery was a guy who had done a surgery on like a goat or something. And his assistant was looking through a medical book at the time. And so they worked together and managed to save this guy's life. But the mother was a bit apprehensive, as you might imagine. Knowing something academically and knowing something experientially is very different When you have been through an experience and you want encouragement, insight, comfort, support, who do you go to? If you are bulimic, do you go to, um, I don't know, somebody who doesn't know anything about eating disorders? If you are depressed and suicidal, are you gonna pick out the sunshiny person in your home group, I'm betting not, and uh, for for good reason, right? You're going to seek out somebody who's been through what you've been through. They've come out the other side. They know what it's like. Why am I spending all of this time uh, on this this morning? Turns out that this this thing about understanding by experience versus understanding with knowledge is really important in our relationship with God. And that's where we wanna camp this morning. This morning we're gonna be looking at one of the most central and important doctrines in the Christian faith. We're gonna be examining the incarnation, the humanity of Jesus, and what this means for us. After today, you'll be able to say to your friends that you saw Christmas stuff on display in church, and it's only August because this is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father, before we get into your word this morning, uh, we ask for you by your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts, open our minds. Help us to look carefully at your scripture and to have uh, clear thinking about it. But we pray, Lord Jesus, that you will help us not to walk out of this room with just intellectual knowledge about something that the Bible says. But we pray that you will help us to walk out of here with a different, richer, more insightful view of who you are, what you went through for us, and how we can relate to you today in a way that is rich and intimate. We give this time to you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, amen. So in the early days of the church, there were a variety of heresies. Um, Two of the prominent ones had to do with uh, the view of who Jesus was. Now there were some who thought that Jesus was God, but did not become fully man. And then there were some who believed the opposite, that he was man, but he was certainly not divine. The Gospel of John is largely devoted to combating the the heresy that Jesus was not God, that he was simply a man. And as you know from Pastor Dan's sermons over the last couple of years, uh, it comes up repeatedly, uh, the I am statements of Jesus, the reactions of the crowds to him doing and saying different things that proved that he was deity and John says at the end of his gospel or towards the end of his gospel that he that there were many many things that Jesus has done but these were written in John 20:31 so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name John was on a mission he was an old guy he was about 90 or pretty old anyway, I think he wrote it around uh, AD 90, and he was combating some of the heresies. He's trying to set the record straight. Who is Jesus? You guys are saying he was just a guy. He wasn't just a guy, he was God. Let me prove it to you, and that's how we have the Gospel of John. Today we're going to be looking at some scripture that will address the other heresy, which is that he was uh, God, but he did not become fully man. Now, this, this heresy is a little bit weird and, and hard to uh, capture in a few sentences, and I, I didn't want to sidetrack into it this morning, even though it was sort of tempting, but there isn't a whole 5 o'clock thing. I don't want to be here until 5 o'clock. So we're skipping Gnosticism for those of you who are, are interested in following up on that later. But part of the, what they believed was that matter, you know, flesh and blood included in that, was essentially evil. So if Jesus is truly God, he cannot become flesh and blood. He can't be matter because matter is evil and God is not evil. So he must not have actually become a man. Well, this was another one of the prominent heresies that was floating around at the time. And man, we have some great stuff in the book of Hebrews to look at that addresses this heresy very directly. Now we're gonna be primarily in the book of Hebrews, but we are gonna bounce around a little bit. And like I said at the beginning, there's a ton of stuff that I could have included but didn't. So this is, you have to really think of this as an overview today. Let's turn our attention to Hebrews chapter two, verses 10 through 18. Gavin, you rock. <laughs> we had a, a, late, a late morning substitution and, uh, and it's working. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them us brothers, saying... for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And we could just spend the rest of the sermon meditating on that instead of listening to me, and uh, and it would be time well spent. What a great passage! Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things—flesh and blood, human nature. Jesus partook of these things. He took on our nature. Now, how is this possible? How could the eternal Son of God, who had always existed with the Father, who was, as chapter 1 in Hebrews tells us, greater than the angels, how could he become man? Well, somebody else asked the same question a long time ago. Let's read from Luke chapter 1. Verse 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, No kidding, This is an occupational hazard of being an angel. You freak people out when you show up, especially when you say stuff like that. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord your God the Son of God. Now notice that even though Jesus was clearly going to be a human baby, like the one being carried around on the back right now, a true, real, human baby, the angel Gabriel says that he will be called holy and the Son of God. He was going to be a human baby, but he was going to be he was not going to be tainted by sinful human nature. How? The Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High will overshadow Mary so that the child born to her did not inherit the sinful nature of man. He retained his God nature, added to it human nature, but without sin. His human nature would be like that of Adam's before the fall two natures, one person. Mind blown. We are limited in our ability to wrap our brains around this stuff. But God is so amazing. And I want to know the details, and I hope we get them someday. I, I, how did God remove the sinful uh, DNA from Mary? That, 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 that principle of sin that's carried in our very, uh, that we inherit. How, what did he do with that? How did he provide the other half of the DNA? We don't know. We just know that the power of the, of the Most High, the Holy Spirit, overshadowed her, and it happened. I want to know, know if the DNA that Jesus got was in any way similar to Adam's. Adam was the first Adam. Jesus is referred to in the Scripture as the second Adam, the firstborn among many brethren. You think they share some DNA? I'm curious. More to come, right? We get to find out all kinds of stuff when we get to the other side. Now, after Luke recounts the story of of Jesus and this announcement and and some of his upbringing, he goes to the temple when he's 12 years old, and Luke comments in chapter 2, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, he grew up just like you grew up. He had development, he changed, his body changed. What do you suppose his voice sounded like when it cracked? Was he embarrassed? I don't know. Think about it. Real person, real human, real body, lived in our flesh. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus is described as the Word of God, who was with God in the beginning and who was God and through whom all that has been made was made. This Jesus, this Word, he says, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God becomes man, but is still God. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes of Jesus, starting in verse 5 of chapter 2, "'Have this attitude in yourself, in yourselves, "'which was also in Christ Jesus, "'who, although he existed in the form of God, "'did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, "'but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, "'and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who does this? Jesus exists with the Father, perfect fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the glory that they had before the world was made. He has all of that and he decides to put himself inside of his own creation. He decides to put himself into a human body and experience what we experience. (laughs) Who does that? Would you do that? Would you give up everything you've got to go identify with somebody in a third world country and live the way they live? Who? I, I, I don't even know if that's strong enough. Anybody have an ant hill in their backyard? Would you? Would you give up your human status to become an ant to experience what it's like to be inside of an ant hill? That's maybe a better picture. Man, who does this? Chapter eight of Romans. not in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God sends his son, Jesus, his own son. Jesus is obedient to the point of death because, John tells us, of love. He loved the world so much that he would send his son. Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to come and be incarnate and become our sacrifice. It's mind-blowing. But this, is, this is essential Christianity. This is what we believe. This is what our scriptures teach us God became man for you and for me so that we could be reconciled to God that just you know if we didn't say anything else this morning that should be enough to just like give us something to be sort of in another world with all week long I hope this resonates with you I hope you sit with this I hope you think about this week Jesus stepping into our skin so that he could do this for us so why did he have to become fully man why did he have to take on flesh and blood let's go back to hebrews chapter 2 starting in 14 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise took partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery for surely it's not the angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham therefore here's the why he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And here we have our answers, and they come in a couple of parts. The first part has to do with salvation with the payment of the penalty for sin. And here it is spelled out very clearly. The reason he took on flesh and blood was that it was the only way he could die. And dying was the only way that he could defeat the devil. And defeating the devil was the only way to take away the power of death. And taking away the power of death was the only way to deliver all of us. But why did he actually have to die in order to pull that off? Well, this gets back to what the Scripture teaches about sin. We'll talk about this more next week when we consider Jesus in the role of the high priest. And if you thought I had to leave out a lot today, wait till next week. I'm going to leave out even more. Jesus is our great high priest. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. And elsewhere in Hebrews, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Next week, we're going to take a little bit of a look at, a very brief look at the sacrificial system and the priesthood of Jesus and the symbolism that that this old system embodied and why Jesus is a better sacrifice, a more perfect sacrifice, and a better high priest and the arbiter of a better covenant. Going to get there next week. That's your preview of coming attractions. Death is the wages of sin. In order to pay the debt, Jesus had to die. In order to die, he had to become human. Is that all linking up? Okay, good. In Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, it says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted the death that you and I deserved. wonder what that tasted like. We're not gonna know, because there's so much about this that transcends our ability because we're just people. We, all we've got is this human flesh. What did it taste like? I, bitter. I It had to have been bitter. But he tasted it for you and I. He tasted it for everyone. So why, in order to do this, did he have to become fully man? What other reasons? Or, sorry, why else... Did he have to become fully man? We know he had to become fully man in order to die so he could be the sacrifice. But why else? What other reasons were there? Well, the second reason, according to this Hebrews passage, takes me back to my illustration at the beginning of the sermon. What would it be like if you woke up in somebody else's body? How would you feel? What would you experience? What would you learn? I hope that you don't take me too literally or see it as sacrilegious that I'm comparing the incarnation to Freaky Friday, okay? I I realized that was risky. Annie kind of went, really? Don't take me too literally here, but there's something about this thing of living in somebody else's body that changes the way you think. None of us are going to ever get to do that the way Jesus did it. But he did it. And the scripture says he did it for specific reasons. Hebrews 2, 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why was he made like us? He was made like us in every respect so that, in order that, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And because he suffered when he was tempted, therefore he can help us who are being tempted. Now, Those of you who are theology buffs may be sensing the tension already between the passage that we are reading and other core concepts of what we understand about the nature of God. And I am not going to solve them for you today or ever, because there are things about this that we're not going to understand until we are in heaven. Jesus needed to experience human flesh in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest, and in order to be able to better help us when we are tempted. Hebrews 4.14 says, "'We do not have a high priest "'who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, "'but one who in every respect "'has been tempted as we are, yet without sin.'" Just for a moment, in the quietness of your own mind, I want you to think about the temptations you have faced in the last month. Don't sit there too long, you might get ill. It's not pretty, is it? Every respect, tempted in every respect. That's a staggering thought. Jesus had to become man in order to experience this. Not just know it, like how I could have told you about Annie's daily routine, but experience it. He had to experience it, the scripture says. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10 says... Have you thought much about Jesus' experience of being human? We know from the scriptures he experienced a range of emotions just like us. We know he grew up just like us. He knew fatigue, he knew frustration, he knew hunger and thirst. On the other hand, he also knew what it was to be full and satisfied. He likely bashed his thumb while learning carpentry from his father. I saw a few grimaces there. You all know what that's like. He grew up in a village around his own family and other families. Doubtless, he went to weddings and funerals. He went to the synagogue. He knew grief, he knew sorrow, and he watched others go through these things as well. He would have seen human evil, both in his countrymen and also in the occupying Roman forces. He probably knew where the bad part of town was. He might have known who the prostitutes were. He would have seen or at least heard about the rebellions that were being put down. He would have watched his friends get married and have children. He knew what it was to have friends and to be betrayed and misunderstood by them. He likely knew what it was to grieve his own father's death, his earthly father, although we don't know the details of this. He knew what it was to be misunderstood by his family, some of whom on one occasion were saying that he had gone out of his mind. He knew what it was to love his people, but to, on the whole, be rejected by them. He knew what it was to have compassion on the crowds who were like sheep without a shepherd, He called himself the good shepherd. He was moved with compassion. He had a fierce sense of justice. He was jealous for the people, for his people. He longed for their salvation. He liked little kids. Now for those of you who like theology, our topic today will either please you with its conundrums or it will keep you awake at night wondering how all this works. How could Jesus need to be made perfect? Wasn't He perfect and sinless? How could Jesus learn obedience? Wasn't He always obedient? Why was it that He had to be made in all respects like His brethren so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest? Doesn't God know everything? How is it that Jesus could learn anything? Well, the theologians and preachers whose work I consulted on this matter generally agreed. And they're gonna say, well, we already know. There's a difference between knowing something and experiencing something. And it was important for Jesus, in order to be perfected in his role as our high priest, to experience our humanity, not just to have knowledge of it. His nature was not changed by his experiences, but his experiences made him perfectly suited to be our high priest. The Jesus who was always obedient in attitude had the experience of being obedient to the point of death on a cross. The Jesus who was perfect and sinless was made perfect or complete in his role as high priest by his experience of the things he suffered. And the Jesus who knew everything about the people he created experienced their flesh and blood firsthand. Now, however you solve the mystery, our application spelled out by the author of Hebrews remains the same. Jesus understands you. He gets you inside, lived in your flesh, lived in your skin. So do you think sometimes that Jesus is so different from you that there's no way he can understand you? Do you think sometimes he will be harsh or impatient with you? Not fully understanding how difficult it can be to struggle with all the things that you are faced with. Do you sometimes think that your sorrow or your grief or your disillusionment, your agony of soul would be foreign to him if you were to tell him about it. What the scripture tells us is that this Jesus has walked in your skin, your flesh, and your blood. He did not walk through this world untouched by the things that we deal with. This Jesus invites us to come boldly to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and grace to help in time of need from a merciful high priest, from a compassionate and sympathetic high priest. I want to take a couple of minutes in prayer with you this morning. I, 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 when I thought about this, I thought, there's no way we can talk about these things and not do something about it. It would be wrong to talk about all of this and then rush out of here to whatever else your day holds. So I wanna pray with you this morning for a couple of minutes. I wanna open this in prayer and then I want to leave a couple of minutes of silence for you to pray. And I'm hoping that whatever it is that you have not been taking to the throne of grace because you didn't think he would get it or you didn't think he would be compassionate or you just felt too bad about it, that you will take it now, that you will start to take it now and that later on when you have more time, you will take it again and again. And commune with your high priest who understands this stuff better than anybody you will ever talk to because he lived it. I'll open us in prayer, pray silently for a couple of minutes, and then I'll close us. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know that there's anything I can think of that makes me more grateful than thinking about these two things, that you have delivered us from death, you have delivered us from the power of death and reconciled us to God. And secondly, that you lived in our skin and you know our experiences firsthand and you say, come, I understand you, come. You're not gonna shock me, come. And so we come, Jesus, this morning, Uh, each of us with our lives and our hearts, we come to you, thank you that you invite us Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for your your great love for us. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your comfort, your indwelling. all of these things this morning in our blessed Savior's name. Amen.